We've all been there. We think we're on a roll. We think we've got a win in sight. By fall of 1993, Leslie Abramson might have been hoping that her client's gutting testimony had convinced skeptics, had made jurors realize that both men had been sexually abused and feared for their lives. Were you scared? Very. Did you ask him not to? Yes. How did you ask him not to? I just told him, I don't, I don't. I just told him that I didn't want to do this and that it hurt me. And he said that he didn't mean to hurt me. He loved me. To seal her case, Abramson wanted to bring in four expert witnesses, trusted sources who could back up Eric and Lyle's testimony, people who knew telltale ways abused children acted later in life. Little did Abramson know those experts were going to backfire because they had inadvertently paved the way for the confession tape to be played in court after nearly four years of having kept it out. I'm your host, Vinny Politan, and this is Murder and the Menendez Brothers, a court TV mystery. I'm a former prosecutor and journalist, and now I'm the lead anchor for Court TV. Today, episode five, The Confession. Using psychologists as experts in court wasn't all that common in the 90s. The defense's experts were there to prove the brothers killed out of fear. But we're now ready to resume, and um, we have both juries uh, back in court, and uh, the defense may call its next witness. Thank you, Your Honor. The defense calls Dr. Ann Burgess. Dr. Burgess had done research on victim trauma, child sexual abuse, and crime scene analysis. She even worked for the FBI. When she came to the stand, Leslie Abramson spent 24 minutes asking her about her credentials. And did you, as a consequence of your research and writing in this area, gain recognition as nationwide as an expert in child sexual abuse? Yes, I did. Then she got to it. You're familiar with the research on abused children that talks about such things as hypervigilance? Yes, I am. What does hypervigilance have to do with this discussion about fear and reaction to fear? In essence, that something in the environment is uh, causing that the person is constantly searching the environment for anything that may be dangerous. Even as adults, abused children may never stop scanning their environment for trouble. But, and this is key, they are also easily alarmed. The bar for what makes them afraid is much lower. People who have been traumatized, it takes much less to activate their fear response. And so it just takes much less uh, or more subtle kinds of cues in the environment to activate their fear response. So take the bloody crime scene, for instance. Dr. Burgess thought it looked chaotic. Remember, Abramson is still trying to show jurors his crime wasn't premeditated. Did you determine that the number of shots here uh, bespoke a disorganized crime scene? Yes. If it was disorganized, then it was more likely the brothers killed in the heat of passion and they hadn't planned it. And you said that there were, was also an aspect of 
um, disorganization based on evidence of emotionality in this crime scene. And could you tell us what that means? Yes. The, the term is sometimes used overkill. And this was the situation in this crime scene that uh, a large number, far more shots were fired than necessary. So if, and, and that indicates that there is emotion involved? Yes, that generally points to what's called a high degree of emotion. Such, such as? Such as fear. So the brothers hadn't planned it and were acting out of pure fear. That was her testimony. One of the defense's other experts spent 60 hours interviewing Lyle Menendez. His name was Dr. John Conti. He was a professor of social work with years of experience working with victims of child abuse. Dr. Conti said that after the sexual abuse Eric and Lyle had experienced, they were easily threatened, always on guard. They sometimes acted in ways that seem irrational to a person who hasn't been abused. The problem with hypervigilance is that because of the concern, the heightened awareness and concern about cues, you can often misread cues. You're so carefully looking for something that's going to tell you, am I going to get hit? Am I going to get hit now or is it going to be in a few minutes? That you sometimes will misread cues. I mean, people do strange things in, in traumatic uh, situations. If the defense could prove abuse had traumatized Lyle and Eric, then they could get a lesser sentence, like manslaughter, and avoid the death penalty. That's why the defense spent two weeks on expert testimony. Some jurors were impressed. I thought that the expert witnesses were very credible, and I think that it was a big mistake on the part of the prosecution to not have any counter-expert witnesses. The prosecution brought forward no expert witnesses to counter the defense. Not one. Bozanich explained why in an interview with Court TV shortly after the trial. I don't think that psychologists and psychiatrists belong in the courtroom unless someone is totally insane. The experts were helpful to the defense, but ultimately, they led to a crippling blow. Why? Because their testimony made a key piece of evidence suddenly relevant. Shortly after their testimony, Judge Stanley Weisberg made a startling ruling that surprised the defense. That's Robert Rand, the reporter and author. He said that he was going to allow the admission of the confession tape the brothers had recorded with Dr. Jerome Ozeal. The juries didn't even know the confession tape existed because previously, the California Supreme Court had ruled that it was protected by doctor-patient confidentiality. But after the judge heard experts testify that Eric and Lyle had indeed killed out of fear, he ruled that the jurors needed to hear the confession tape. It was relevant evidence that could no longer be protected by confidentiality laws. Judge Weisberg himself said the tape proved the brothers' consciousness of guilt. He felt it showed they knew what they were doing was wrong. The brothers' confession tape to their therapist was about to be played for the world. Ultimately, the defense convinced Judge Weisberg that they should get to present the tape to the jury. They wanted to be the ones to frame the tape instead of letting the prosecution control the narrative. And the reason they did that was so that immediately after the tape, they put on a series of therapy experts that could put their spin on the tape and 
present their version of how that tape was created and what was in that tape. And that was a really key tactical move by the defense to cut off the prosecution before they introduced the tape. Dr. Conti thought that Dr. Ozeal had manipulated the brothers into saying what they said. So on the stand, he said, It makes me question the, how much faith they have in the tape at all. It appears to be a script, but in spite of the script, you on a move to strike, it appears to be a script as a conclusion on the part of the witness and improper. Prosecutor Bazanich did her part to stop the defense, but striking a comment from the record didn't erase it in the minds of the jurors. Dr. Conti was on the stand for about an hour, hammering the point that the tape was not to be trusted. Then at last, it was played by defense attorney Jill Lansing. And I'd like to play the tape now for the jury, if I may. Do you all have a copy of the transcript? Mm-hmm. All right, again, a reminder regarding transcripts that um, they are only given to you uh, as an aid to your listening to the tape recording itself. The judge wanted it to be clear to the jurors that this tape was about more than the words in it, but he gave them a transcript of what they were about to hear so they could read along. Now, the tape is pretty hard to hear. It starts with Eric and Lyle telling Dr. Ozeal about their mother being depressed. The brothers discuss a suicide note they found from their mother. Lyle starts by reading the note. It says how she loved Jose and her children, but she couldn't deal with her own problems anymore. I'm sorry I had to do this. They discuss their mother for over 20 minutes. Eric can be heard crying in the background for much of the tape. It's mostly Lyle talking, Ozeal asking the questions. Lyle says the brothers had ultimately decided their mother couldn't live without their father. Ozeal asks, why did your dad have to die? Yes, he was domineering, but what warranted the murder? They speak in somewhat vague terms until a little over halfway into the tape. By then, Eric has stopped crying. He says to his therapist, quote, I had no choice but to do what I did, and I hate myself for doing it. It was like the air had been sucked out of the room. Lyle tells Ozeal their mother's letters had given them permission to carry out her suicide. I feel that in her letters to, to Eric and I, she gave me the permission to, 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 to please carry out her suicide. And it was obvious she wanted to die. Lyle says his aunts and uncles knew Kitty was suffering, but they did nothing. And what he and Eric did took courage beyond belief. Lyle says he wanted Eric's consent to kill their mother, that he should just sleep on it to decide. This was an important moment. It showed just how planned these murders really were. Lyle's tone sounds indifferent almost. After almost one hour, the tape ended on one of the most quoted moments of the entire trial. Lyle says, quote, 
I think one of the biggest pains is that you just miss having these people around. I miss not having my dog around if I can make such a gross analogy. Yes. I miss not having my dog around if I can make such a gross The coldness of the analogy crept through the courtroom. Some people apparently let out audible gasps. Now you had the defendants from their own words, their own mouths. That's Lori Levinson, the law professor again. Pretty much admitting to what the prosecution's theory was, that these boys wanted to get rid of their parents, not that they were acting in self-defense. And it wasn't just what they said, but how they said it, how coldly they said it. I think that had a very human impact on the jury. The prosecution was more concerned with what was not on the tape than what was. If the murder was motivated by fear, in self-defense, and ultimately in response to sexual abuse, then why was the abuse not mentioned on the confession tape? Before the prosecution had a chance to press that point, defense attorney Jill Lansing addressed it head on. They would do whatever it took to control the narrative. In this tape-recorded document, there is no reference by Lyle Menendez or Eric Menendez to having been physically, psychologically, or sexually abused. Is that correct? Correct. And does that concern you in any way with regard to the opinions you've rendered? The sort of principle of child abuse that many victims of child abuse are in therapy for years and years and never reveal. Revealing abuse requires a level of comfort. It's not at all surprising that people would not reveal things which are particularly anxiety-producing or traumatic. And the fact that they claim to have killed Kitty for her own good? But the essential idea that, for example, mom was killed out of mercy, I thought to be psychologically naive and not to be consistent with anything that I had read or heard anywhere else. Dr. Conti was not saying much to excuse the brothers, but he was backing them up. He said it was unlike Lyle to say such a thing. Then Bazanich had her turn with Conti. She sped through one significant part of the tape to the next. Missing his parents, and he analogizes missing his parents to missing his dog. Did you consider that at all psychologically significant, that he would liken his parents to a dog? Yes. And what did you think of that? Well, I thought it was, uh, as he says, a gross analogy. I thought it was tragic that in trying to talk about missing someone, what he calls forth is a relationship with a pet. Okay, so rather than showing a cold and callous nature, you'd have decided that this shows the fact that he is in fact abused. Is that correct? That he was abused by his parents? No, I don't think that this proves that he was abused, but I think that this analogy, which is stupid and horrible, doesn't prove that he was abused, but it talks about his life, and it's consistent with the way he talked about his life as essentially not having any other human being It's also possible that when he talks about planning to kill his mother, that that really is a sign of premeditation and not a sign of planning to be afraid of her, correct? It's possible, but it's not consistent with everything else I've learned in this case. Did you consider his tone of voice in the tape to be at all disturbing to you? Yes. And uh, it appeared to be rather matter-of-fact, wouldn't you agree? Matter-of-fact, potentially dissociative, or (coughs) as if he were going through something which didn't have a great deal of significance to him. Did you consider the fact that that might be a sign that he had was some, what, asocial or antisocial? I did, but that doesn't fit with over 50 hours I've spent with him. In the end, Dr. Conti still claimed there was sexual abuse in the Menendez family and that the brothers killed in self-defense. 
The confession tape seemed to raise more questions for jurors than it answered. A juror later said, It wasn't a forced confession, you know, on that tape. Uh, so it, it was clear to me that these guys were spilling their guts to this uh, psychologist for whatever reason. Another juror was skeptical of their therapist. You have to think about what are Ozeal's motives for making this tape and for asking these questions, and what are their motives? What are they still trying to hide? How much of this can you take at face value? It was hard to know who to trust. The trial was coming to a close, but the defense had one last weapon to deploy before the jury could deliberate. The very same day the tape had been played for the jurors, the defense had a witness ready, someone who had once worked with the cops to turn the brothers in. It was... Judalon Smith. That's right. Judalon Smith was in court testifying for the defense. She had switched sides. Now, she had never testified for the prosecution, but she had worked with the cops. Four years earlier, her evidence had set this whole trial in motion. It was probably a bit of a shock to the prosecution to see her in court. The defense didn't bring her in to relitigate her affair with Ozeal. Instead, they wanted Smith to hammer home a familiar point, that the prosecution's case was built on a deceitful man's word. And this time, the allegations were much more serious. When I went to the police, I, I had just been terribly victimized. She's talking about what her ex, Dr. Ozeal, had done to her. I mean, I had not just suffered, like, one crime against me. I had been repeatedly victimized for months by this man. When we last heard from Smith, she and Ozeal had broken up and then she went to the cops. But she was now saying she hadn't gone to tell on the brothers. Not exactly. She went to the cops to report that Ozeal had raped and drugged her. Maybe when she told the cops about the murder, she hoped she could get protection from Ozeal in return. Or maybe, like she said in court, she just wanted to do the right thing. Her testimony was heart-wrenching. A warning. The content in the next part includes descriptions of sexual abuse. I mean, I had been raped. I had been beaten. I had been isolated from my family and friends. I couldn't function and I couldn't think. Now, on the stand, she explained she was unstable at the time she contacted the Beverly Hills police. Remember, she had told the cops she overheard the brothers admit to the murder. But now, she wasn't so sure. This is Michael Burt, a defense attorney, questioning Smith. At some point, you sat down and gave a lengthy tape-recorded statement to a deputy district attorney and Detective Zoller, correct? Correct. And on that tape statement, did you indicate to them that you, in fact, had overheard Lyle and, Mene Lyle and Eric Menendez confessing to the murder of their parents? Yes. And at the time you gave that statement, did you believe that, in fact, you had overheard it? Yes. Had you overheard it? Bits and pieces of it, yes. Do you believe it now, that you personally overheard those statements no. Since then, I, I have been in therapy, and we had worked on sorting out what, the, what I was brainwashed with and what was real. She had given sworn testimony to investigators, but now she was taking it all back. Sure, the tapes that she pointed to ended up being evidence in the trial, but anything she had told the cops as a witness was now in question. A strange case had officially gotten even stranger. Then the prosecution had to cross-examine its one-time ally, 
you can hear the edge in Bazanich's voice. Okay. Would it be fair to say then that your testimony here today is that you never heard either of the defendants discussing any details with your own two ears? Would that be correct? I would say that, that I can't be responsible and say that I heard them because of what Jerry Oziel did to me as far as implanting memories and ideas that didn't exist. I take it that one of the, your motivations uh, for testifying is that you would like to discredit Dr. Oziel further, is that correct? I did not have any motivation in testifying. I did not want to be here. I made a specific request not to be here. But you're here, correct? I was subpoenaed. I asked my attorney, and he said that I had to appear because I was subpoenaed. Ms. Smith, you want to discredit Dr. Ozeal. That's what you want to do, right? I don't have any need to discredit Dr. Ozeal. Dr. Ozeal is a discredit. Okay, and it is your desire, is it not, to discredit Dr. Ozeal by your It testimony. is my desire to set the record straight and to tell the truth. Judalon Smith didn't want to be in this trial. Back in her 20s, when she'd first met Ozeal, all she probably wanted was love. Instead, she had been traumatized, taken advantage of, and forced to testify. And it was all on national TV. Jurors had heard all about it. Here's Hazel Thornton again. The Judalon Smith... Dr. Ozeal soap opera was like a trial within a trial. The thing about Judalon Smith was that she she didn't go to the police to report Lyle and Eric Menendez. She went to the police to report Dr. Ozeal for kidnapping her and raping her and drugging her. I think people forget that, sh- that that's how that happened. The jurors had to determine whether the Ozeal Smith saga was part of the Menendez story or another distraction served up by the defense. The distractions were very, very heavy. You had to keep focused that we were sitting there on a murder trial, not looking at a, a soap opera or something. After five months, the Menendez trial was finally nearing its end. With the fate of Lyle Menendez now in the hands of his jury, closing arguments in the case of younger brother Eric are scheduled to begin on Monday. The prosecution and defense would make their last cases. A closing argument isn't meant to function as evidence, just something for each side to be remembered by. The prosecutors say greed was the motive. The defense says it was the result of sexual and physical abuse against the brothers, which lasted for years. First, Pamela Bazanich addressed Lyle's jury. Look at these defendants, look at their crimes. Look at what Lyle Menendez has tried to sell you as a defense. Look at the lies that he has told you on the witness stand and ask yourself, can you believe anything that this man says? There's no possible way. He is not acting like an adult. He's trying. He wants you to believe he's a child. He's a boy. He's not responsible. He's a victim. He's an adult. He's responsible for his actions. He planned out this crime. And rather than taking whatever his background was, and I don't think we can be sure at all what his background was. You've been painted a picture here, but it's just a picture. It's not real. At the beginning of the trial, Bazanich presented an open-shut case. Now, she seemed to recognize just how complex this case really was. To say that this is a murder strictly to get money is, is to misunderstand the motivation of the defendants. There are other ways they could have gone about getting the money. What they wanted was their lifestyle. They wanted freedom. This is not a case about sexual abuse. Sexual abuse happens to people. I'm not going to stand here and say that children are not abused. 
And it is a horrible, horrible crime when a child is abused, especially by a parent, because there are issues relating to parental abuse that are separate and apart um, from being abused by a stranger. You know, a stranger you can hate. It's hard to hate your parents. And yet, in this particular case, if you believe in the sexual abuse, that doesn't mean that the defendants are not guilty of murder, because they are two separate things. And it's the people's position that the sexual abuse is here to make the parents look so bad that you don't care that they're dead. Whether jurors believed they had been abused or not, it was important for Bazanich to remind them that murder was not justified. Lester Kuriyama and Jill Lansing gave their closing arguments summarizing their cases. Then it was Leslie Abramson's turn. She was known for being a showstopper. Rather than reading from a stack of papers, Abramson pinned up a faceless photo of a nude young Eric Menendez. It was a photo Abramson said had been taken by their parents. Now, this is the crime of Eric Menendez. And I cannot show you the crime that Jose Menendez committed on him, but you heard about some of the things that he liked to do to his little boy. And one of them was to stick tacks like this in his thighs and in his butt and to run needles across his penis. She is physically sticking tacks into the image of Eric's body here, piercing the photo rather violently to get her point across. A lot of people have a hard time believing that these things happen. That's been the tragedy in this country with child abuse for so long. People, you don't want to believe people do this to their kids. You wouldn't do this to your kids. And you don't want to believe it happens. And there's a lot of resistance to it because we don't respect children very much in this country. In spite of all the lip service that we give to child issues, we think children lie. We think children make things up. We think children fantasize. So when children are victims, we scrutinize them differently than we do adults. We wanted you to weigh and consider whether every piece of evidence was believable. We did not do what the prosecution did, which was run away from the evidence that they could not deal with. And that was the evidence of extensive, disgusting, to use his word, perverted sexual abuse that took place inside this family for 12 years. Mr. Kuriyama did not ask one single question of Eric Menendez on the sexual abuse. The prosecution and the defense had a chance to make rebuttals to claims the other side made. Prosecutor Lester Kuriyama decided to leave a lasting impression. In his rebuttal, he argued that Eric was gay, and that had something to do with why he wanted to kill his parents. I'm going to discuss this evidence in the case as it relates to the defendant's uh, homosexuality issues. But because of uh, the defense and because of uh, what they've tendered in this case, I think it's relevant and I think that I have to address it. Just so we're clear, there was no proof of Eric being gay. It hadn't been raised at trial before, but Kuriyama concluded that Eric's so-called homosexuality was the root of the conflict between him and Jose and eventually led to parricide. And if that wasn't controversial enough, Kuriyama argued Eric was able to describe his father molesting him because he had sex with other men. Indeed, if the defendant were engaging in consensual sex, homosexual activity with other uh, men, that would account for his being able to describe what he described for you 
his sexual encounters with his father. Abramson later gave an interview to Court TV. Her language here is impassioned, if not inflammatory. They want this jury to believe that it's okay, first of all, that he's homosexual, which he is not, and second of all, that it's okay to rape homosexual boys because they like it, or they had it coming, or they're only faggots and we don't care about them. Kuriyama's parting words about Eric's sexuality had a lasting effect, though. Even though it wasn't in the evidence, this later became a sticking point for some jurors. Deliberations would reveal if the jurors were as split as the public. Lyle and Eric Menendez have told horrific stories of parental abuse, which makes them either victims or calculating liars, an issue that sharply divides viewers. I've covered about 250 trials. I've never seen people so polarized. As the jury got ready to start deliberations, Judge Weisberg announced that they would not have the option of acquitting the brothers. That was a win for the prosecution. For the jurors, it had been five months of avoiding news coverage and conversation about the Menendez brothers. The holidays were approaching. The jurors had spent the better part of the year sitting quietly in court. Finally, they could go off and decide the fate of Eric and Lyle Menendez. In our next and final episode, the two juries come to a decision. The first vote we took was whether or not Eric was guilty of murder as opposed to manslaughter. And the first mistake we made was to take a show of hands because that made it obvious right away that we were divided down gender lines. That and more next time. Murder in the Menendez Brothers, a Court TV mystery, is hosted by Vinnie Politan. It's produced by Janaki Mehta and Tana Robbins of Neon Hum Media. Our editor is Catherine St. Louis. Our engineer is Scott Somerville. The executive producer at Neon Hum Media is Jonathan Hirsch. For Kate's Network Original Productions, Sophia Kelly is the senior vice president and Sean Cameron is the senior director. Production assistance is provided by Kate Mishkin and Haley Fager. Special thanks to Natalie Wren. You can see Court TV's complete coverage of the first Menendez trial in the Trials on Demand section on our website, courttv.com.